0: Good morning, Four Corners Church, and friends and family. I know that this is a time where lots of uh, family are together. We've had family in town recently here for the Good Friday service, not uh, today, but I know that uh, it's, a, it's a joyous time to be with family members, but far more than that, it is a joyful time to celebrate our Lord's resurrection from the dead. So, happy Easter, or Resurrection Sunday. This is a day of immense celebration for the people of God. Immense celebration for people all over the world. And that is is an exciting thing to think that we're here in this uh, little space and uh, we're here as a local church. But there are Christians all over this planet. Various time zones who will today gather together and worship the living Christ. The raised Christ. Just as Daniel Said earlier, uh, we are not just here to sing about Christ or to uh, worship about Him or 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 to do things uh, in His name. We are here to direct ourselves to Him in praise and in worship. We are singing to this Christ, preaching unto this Christ, and listening to preaching unto this Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <clears throat> is the reason we even gather for worship, for corporate worship, on Sundays. Maybe you didn't know that, but uh, this is the first day of the week. This is the Lord's Day, and this—that that is the reason we gather on the first day of the week, is because that is the day that Jesus Christ was raised. Every Sunday that we gather, we are meant to celebrate the resurrection. That's what our gatherings are. They, are, they are little reverberations of the resurrection. They are little celebrations of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So let me just say this to you. Come back next week. I hope you will. And in essence, that's what we'll be doing. That's what we'll be doing next Sunday. And that's what we were doing last Sunday. And that's what we'll be doing two Sundays from now. Is we will be worshiping this Christ. Remembering his resurrection. But of course, one Sunday a year is set aside for the Christian church to focus our hearts and minds on this very first Lord's Day, on the day our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Our passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, all the way to chapter 28, verse 20. So if you would go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles. Matthew 27, 57 to 28, 20. This past Friday night, on Good Friday, we looked at Christ's crucifixion and his death with emphasis on on the impact of his death. We were looking on Friday at the power of the cross, and particularly as Matthew describes it in chapter 27, verses 51 to 54. And so you get those four verses there where right after Jesus dies, we see these effects, we see these things that happen, these occurrences, and Matthew intends for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for us to uh, get a sense from those occurrences of the impact and the power of Jesus's death on the cross, the power of the cross. And we saw on Friday that it removes the barrier, the veil, the curtain of the temple, torn from top to bottom. It opens the grave. We see these graves, these tombs busted open, and it changes the heart. These Unlikely converts. We see the centurion and his men, the Roman soldiers there, these pagan guys, these Gentiles gathered around the foot of the cross and they see all that happened and they confess truly, this is the Son of God. So it removes the barrier, opens the grave, and changes the heart. And my prayer is that everyone in this room has experienced the power of the cross, but it's unlikely. It's unlikely that every person in this room has truly, authentically, life, life-transformingly experienced the power of the cross. So I pray right now in your own heart, if you, if you have a question mark next to that, or if you just know that it's not the case, cry out to God. Ask Him this morning to use His Word To transform your heart. To graciously shine the light of the gospel into your heart. Cry out to him. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Show me the glory of this Christ. I don't know the beauty of this Christ. I don't cling to this Christ. I don't treasure this Christ. Show me that my heart might take delight in him. Today... We're going to pick up where we left off with Christ's burial in chapter 27, verse, verse 57. So we're just going to pick up where we left off on Friday night with the burial of Christ. And we're just going to keep going right up to the end of the gospel. What you'll, you'll see as Matthew articulates this, this uh, account, this report of Christ, his death and his resurrection, is he really just takes the resurrection right on up to the end. It's not as though we ever leave the resurrection, The resurrection is lingering in the air. It is the the great theme that brings the gospel to a close. And so we're going to take it all the way up to the end of the gospel. The title for the sermon this morning is Characteristics of Christ's Resurrection. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. This is the most important part by the way, Matthew 27, verse 57 to 28, 20. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Haramathiah named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb." The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, "'Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first.'" Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. i got to stop here for a moment and just say this, because I'm not going to say this later. But uh, notice the women observe the Sabbath. Who doesn't observe the Sabbath? The guys who were ready to kill Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. You see the hypocrisy. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning, this angel in his clothing, white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. The rallying cry of the Christian church. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, obviously, if they were asleep, how could they have known Someone came and stole him away. Verse 14, And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Then the close of the gospel. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can go ahead and be seated. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer and... Ask that he would be with us during this time of instruction from his word. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you, Lord God. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the God of heaven. God, we thank you that you made us. We exist. All the pleasures of our lives, all the joys, all the The good things that we experience in this life. Everything from your hand. And yet from birth. We do not honor you. We do not give you thanks. We do not submit to your authority. Imaged from our very earliest years. As we do not submit to the authority of our parents. Father. Forgive us through Christ our Lord. We thank you that you have made the way, that you have given us the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that he will see us through to the end, that he will bring us safely home, that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is the majestic prophesied Christ, that all of human history was moving towards him. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He is the one to whom the obedience of the peoples belong. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the great prophet that Moses foretold about. He is the Lamb of God and the temple itself among us. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is all of these things and so much more. And we thank you that we get the privilege of gathering this morning to worship him, to worship you through him. Father, we thank you that we have hearts that desire you. Father, we would have none of that if it were not for your grace, your spirit working in us Your new birth, which you give freely by your grace, apart from our works. Father, I pray for anyone who is among us this morning who has not experienced that new birth. They've never been changed. They've never turned away from the old life, the life of sin and self and idol worship to you. Turned from those things to you, the living God, through your living Son. Father, as Psalm 2 says, that they have never kissed the Son. They've never kissed the King. They've never fled from the wrath to come. Father, would you be merciful this morning? Would you save sinners? Would you, would you show them the glory of Christ, the truth of the resurrection, and would they repent and believe? And for all of us, Father, who are believers, would we be strengthened in our faith this morning? Would we be filled with joy and would we be placed on mission to go out and do the work of the crucified, risen, reigning Lord Jesus? Grant us grace now, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. So this larger chunk running from Jesus's burial up through what's been called the Great Commission, that last little section there at the end of the gospel, this larger chunk is all centered on his resurrection. The burial, of course, leading up to the resurrection, and then the Great Commission flowing out of the resurrection. And so this morning, I want us to see four characteristics of the resurrection from this large chunk of scripture. And so here they are. you'll see those up on the screen, four characteristics of the resurrection that we get from this larger chunk of scripture. So first, it is credible; Second, it is joyful; Third, it is confrontational, and finally. It is practical. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is all of these things and so much more. Credible, joyful, confrontational, and practical. So let's look first at the fact that the resurrection of Jesus is credible. The editors of the ESV translation, there are many translations english translations of the bible many translations in different languages and some languages where there's only one translation and there are languages in the world where there is no translation so we praise god we have so many so many riches so many translations of god's word but the editors of the esv have labeled these first three scenes as jesus is buried the guard at the tomb and the resurrection And it's from these three scenes that we begin to see that the resurrection is, in fact, credible. It shows itself to be historically and intellectually reliable. I'm going to say a few things in a moment. It really just scratches the surface. There have been massive books written on the historicity of the resurrection, so if you're here today and you're not a believer and you walk around and talk about how you, know, you use these, these platitudes, you use these cliches from our culture about how it can't be trusted and so forth, let me just encourage you. Why don't you read a few of those massive books before you tout these things? Many books have been written on the credibility, on the historical reliability of the resurrection. And here we find six things, at least, and this is not everything, and really we're just going to dip our toe into it, but six things that make it clear that the resurrection is credible. Let me give them to you, six things. We're going to go through these quickly, but you can write them down if you'd like. If not, you can just listen, but here they are. The unlikely follower, the fulfilled prophecy, the locked down tomb, the embarrassing witnesses, the physical presence and the miraculous event. These are just a few things, a handful of things, that show the resurrection here from Scripture to be credible. We'll have to go through these quickly, but it's important for us to at least make these six observations. So here's the first one, the unlikely follower. After Jesus has been crucified as a criminal, between two thieves. Now by the way, let me just quickly say nothing was more shameful than crucifixion. For every party involved, for the Romans, it was the lowest of the low. And for the Jewish people, they had a, a they had a text in the Old Testament that told them cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So from the Jewish perspective, this is the most cursed person, and from a Roman perspective, this is the vilest of offenders the most shameful way to die. So after Jesus has been crucified, after he has been tried, condemned, and mocked by the religious leaders of the Jewish people, the last person you would expect to bury Jesus would be one of those religious leaders. The last person who would put his neck out, so to speak, To bury Jesus would have been one of those religious leaders who were so instrumental in having him crucified. And yet here we are. The man who comes forward to bury Jesus and with such great care and expense is Joseph of Haramathiah. One of the members of the Sanhedrin. One of the religious leaders. He is one of the members of the Jewish high court. The one that would try offenders. The one that would condemn Jesus. He, along with Nicodemus, we are told in John nineteen thirty-nine, had become Jesus' followers. They had, they had moved away from rejecting Jesus to following Jesus. You know... Crucified people were given very little dignity after death, just kind of thrown somewhere after being taken down off of the cross. Very little dignity, no public mourning allowed, not buried in the family tomb, just kind of thrown in a hole somewhere. And here, Joseph goes to Pilate. And he asks for Jesus' body so that he could give Jesus this dignified burial. Just as we saw with the Roman soldiers on Friday night. This speaks to the power of Christ's life. To the validity of his person and message. And I think we see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. One of the amazing things about the Jesus movement early on is all of these unlikely followers of Jesus... Paul is is absolutely unlikely to follow Jesus. He's steeped in Pharisaism. The Pharisees hated Christ. They hated Jesus. And Jesus preached adamantly against their wickedness. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. We read over and over again in Matthew 23. Because of their hypocrisy, because of their legalism, because of their lack of love. Because they had taken the traditions of man and placed them over the word of God. Paul, as well as these other men, Joseph and Nicodemus, were part of that crowd. They were part of that group. They had absolutely zero to gain from following Jesus. Zero. zero. And much to lose. And yet they did. If Jesus was not who he claimed to be, then how could men like this have given up their reputations and status to follow a crucified man? What historical credibility is there in that? The unlikelihood of these followers speaks to the credibility of Christ and his subsequent resurrection. So that's the first, the unlikely follower. Second, the fulfilled prophecy. In verse 57 we are told that Joseph was a rich man. He was a wealthy leader of the Jewish people and he had a tomb cut in the rock. Probably for him and his family, he had had prepared this tomb, he had purchased this tomb, he had it cut nicely, ready to go. But it hadn't been used yet. It was brand new. And it could not have been cheap. This would have been an expensive purchase for this man, Joseph. And this rich man chooses to take Jesus' body and place it in his new tomb. As with so many details of Jesus' death and resurrection, this was a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy going back over 700 years. So over 700 years before this event God, through the prophet Isaiah, had prophesied that this would happen. Listen to what it says. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. We know he was crucified between two thieves and with a rich man in his death. Prophecy of Christ's. Let me just ask you this this morning. If you're a Christian or if you're an unbeliever, let me just ask you this question. Have you given much thought, really given much thought and reflection to all the ways that Jesus fulfills prophecy? This is one of the unique features. I remember telling our kids a couple of years ago, just talking about the uniqueness of Christianity. One of the things I said was, was grace. The idea of grace makes Christianity unique on all the religions of the world. But another aspect of Christianity that makes it unique is this emphasis on prophecy. Go and open these holy books. Go and open the Old Testament. And read of the prophecies of one who would come. One who would save his people. One who would come in this specific way. And do these specific things. And then we see these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Read especially Isaiah 53. Read Psalm 22. All of these prophecies. Have you given much consideration to the weight of the evidence for the credibility of this Christ and his resurrection? Third, the locked down tomb. As we read in verses 62 to 66, the religious leaders are concerned that Jesus' disciples would come and steal away his body. And the reason for this is because Jesus had claimed that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Well, they obviously don't want this sort of thing to happen. They don't want his followers, his disciples, to come and get his body and say, look, he rose. And so they scurry over to Pilate feverishly on the Sabbath, by the way. Busy, 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 guys. And they ask Pilate for a guard of Roman soldiers. Pilate says, okay, fine, here you go. Probably fed up with these men. Uh, We we read in the Gospels that uh, Pilate discerned that the reason that they wanted Jesus crucified was because of envy. Pilate's wife had had a dream. And as Pilate was there, on his uh, judgment seat they're dealing with this very annoying, from his perspective, desire for these religious leaders to put this Jesus to death out of envy, his wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much in a dream. All of this is going on, this whirlwind of craziness. You can imagine that Pilate does not like these guys very much. Fine, go ahead, take a guard of soldiers and do it. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now even before we read this, we read in verse 60 that Joseph had rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And in Mark we are told that the ladies on the approach to the tomb early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body are discussing this large stone. It's almost like in their love for Jesus and their, their, their hastiness to get there, they're, they're just concerned about gathering up these spices and getting to Jesus. And then on the way, they're like, oh, the stone. How are we going to move this stone? Mark tells us that this stone, he says, was very large. So what do we have here? One very large stone. And then the stone is sealed, and Roman soldiers are placed there to guard the tomb. This tomb has been locked down in order to prevent anyone, any human, that is, from taking Jesus' body away. So to reinforce the credibility of the resurrection, we see here this is a locked-down tomb. Fourthly, we have the embarrassing witnesses. While it does not appear to be a big deal to us in our modern culture, it would have been a big deal in the first century that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And we see this in chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. This would have been a a, a huge deal in the first century because a woman's testimony was seen as nothing in that culture, in that Day Really, all throughout the ancient world, not just in that culture, but throughout the ancient world, a woman's testimony was seen as nothing. One commentator, Craig Keener, describes it this way, the witness of women was considered unreliable in that culture, yet Jesus goes against the culture by revealing himself to the women and telling them to bear his message to the other disciples, This detail is definitely not one that ancient Christians would have invented. Hello? If you were making up a story that you wanted other people to quickly accept and believe, you would not have told it this way. You would not have told it this way. And that goes along with the rest of the Bible. You would not have your your great king, the one great king of Israel, of the golden age of Israel's history, take a man's wife and have him killed on the battle line. One of his most loyal soldiers. I'm speaking of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. We find that all throughout the Bible. We see these little details that no one who's making up a story that they want people to embrace quickly and heartily is going to put in that story. These are embarrassing things. These are embarrassing little bits. You just leave that stuff out. If it's just, hey, geography, hero worship, you leave it out. If it's made up, you leave it out. If it's true you make sure to put it in. And that's what we find all throughout the Bible. From from that culture standpoint in the first century, these were embarrassing witnesses. And yet that's what we're told because that's how it happened. These were the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ and the first ones to say that he had been raised. Fifth, we see the physical presence some so-called Christians have abandoned belief in a literal physical resurrection. I remember when we first moved to Scotland uh, in, in the city of Edinburgh, we were living there, we went to this, uh, this church, so-called, and, and uh, it, was a, it was a church building at least, and we went in, we sat down, we were listening, and uh, the woman preacher began to uh, explain away the resurrection. She began to talk about how, you know, it was uh, this spiritual thing and so forth. And it started to talk about it being in the heart and in the mind and how it impacted, you know, the, the thinking of the believers of Jesus. Nobody, no literal rising from the dead, no physical resurrection. Instead, these so-called Christians opt for a resurrection that is more palatable to the world. Where Jesus rises spiritually in the hearts of his people. Sure. Everybody can get on board with that, right? Sounds so nice and sentimental. Spiritual resurrection. Well, that is utter nonsense. We see it here. We see that Jesus' resurrection was bodily and physical. Chapter 28, verse 9. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Jesus was raised literally, historically, physically, bodily from the dead. We see the same thing with Thomas. Thomas puts his finger in Jesus' wounds, and we see Jesus eating breakfast with his disciples. Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet. They would have had the nail prints in them. That it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then he ate in front of them, he ate food in front of them, not a ghost. Not rising up in their hearts, in front of their faces. This which we have seen, this which we have heard, this which our hands have handled, the Apostle John says in 1 John. And here's the amazing thing. These men went to their deaths, gruesome, painful, excruciating, torturous deaths, holding out the truth that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead. They were willing to die for that. Who is willing to die in mass number in those ways for a lie that they themselves made up and covered up? That's ridiculous. And the truth is, we all know it's ridiculous. Whether we're believers or not, common sense tells us that is ridiculous. Jesus rose physically and bodily, from the dead. And then finally, number six, the miraculous event. Put simply, Jesus' resurrection was a miracle. It was the greatest of miracles, the greatest miracle that has ever happened. We see this here with the angelic presence, verses two to three, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Now, it's important that I say this. Uh, the angel's not there to roll the stone away so Jesus can get out of the tomb. Hold on, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. No. Hold on, Jesus, let me get this stone out of the way. That's not how it happened. And we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus can move through walls. He's, he's physical, he's bodily, and yet he's able to do things that we can't do. Giving us a sense for our future resurrection bodies. The angel's not there to let Jesus out, but to show the others where Jesus had once been, to show that the tomb is indeed empty. And the miraculous nature of this event reminds us that many reject the resurrection not because of a lack of evidence. Now listen to this closely. Why is it that people reject the resurrection of Christ? Well, many, not because of a lack of evidence, but because they have an anti-supernatural presupposition. I'm sorry to load you down with all those words, but what I'm saying is this. They think miracles can't happen, period. So they come to these stories, they come to these events, they come to these ancient texts with a presupposition. They've already decided one thing is true and factual, and that is miracles don't happen. They have a naturalistic worldview, a materialistic worldview, anti-supernatural So no amount of evidence can convince them because they've already decided, they've already refused to accept that a miracle can occur. Let me just say this to you, those of you who are historically minded. This is not history. This is philosophy. And what I mean is to come at the resurrection in that way is not to weigh historical data. It's not to weigh historical evidence and to historically come to a a, a, a reasoned conclusion, it is to simply throw the evidence out at the beginning because of your philosophical presupposition. That's what we have. And we have that all over the world today. Now, the resurrection is a miracle. And the truth is, creation is a miracle. So those who are part of God's creation, which is a miracle, are spending much time saying miracles can't happen. And yet, everywhere we look around us, we see that the fact that God spoke something out of nothing is itself a miracle. So, the first thing that we see is that the resurrection is credible, the first characteristic. Secondly, we see that it is joyful. Look at chapter 28, verses 5 to 10. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest news anyone could ever hear. Think of any news that you could get. Any news that you could get. The resurrection is far greater. There is no better news under the sun. God accepted Jesus' payment for sin. Death has been defeated. New creation has begun. Hope of eternal life is secure. The resurrection tells us all of these things. Packed into the words, he is risen, are all of these glorious truths. And we see the goodness of this news In how the resurrection impacts the women, we see fear and great joy. Verse 8 But then twice we hear the women told not to be afraid. First, the angel tells them, Don't be afraid. And then Jesus says, Do not be afraid. So, what are we left with? We are left with one all consuming response great joy. The resurrection produces great joy. And I think from these verses here we see three reasons for this joy. Three reasons for this joy in this passage. First, the resurrection itself wipes out fear. And that's the reason the angel and Jesus himself says, do not be afraid. Fear and the resurrection just don't jive because the resurrection wipes out fear. Fear. Because of the resurrection, we have no need to be afraid. It was natural for the women to fear, given the miraculous and unexpected nature of this event. But twice they are told not to fear. Yes, we have fear of God. We are told all throughout Scripture, the beginning of wisdom is fear of God. The beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord. We are to fear God. Job is celebrated as a figure in in the history of God's people as one who feared the Lord. But this kind of fear is a reverential awe as it has been described. It is reverence toward God. It is awe of God. But being afraid, as we typically understand it, has been done away with for the Christian by Christ's resurrection. No fear of God's wrath. If you're not a Christian, the greatest problem that you have is that the wrath of God abides on you you will face the fury of a just, holy God. And right now, you don't see the depth of your sin. You don't see how all these things work together, how you hate God and rebel against God and deny God and reject God and dishonor God and do not give him gratitude and how all that just spills right on over horizontally into your interactions with your neighbor. No deep-seated, true, worshipful love of God and neighbor is just not there. You don't see it now, but when you stand before the judge, you will see it. And for the Christian, we've been given insight into our sinfulness. Uh, Christianity produces humility. Christianity produces graciousness. It produces gratitude. Why? Because we see ourselves rightly. We see what's really in here. We see the sin of our hearts. We see our propensities. We see love of self the pride of life, disregard for God trampling on our neighbor. We see it. We have been given eyes to see the resurrection stamps out fear of this wrath that is to come on the world for sin. Everyone knows this wrath is to come, and everyone knows this wrath is just. It's the reason we get so bent out of shape when we hear about Russian bombs destroying Ukrainian civilians. It's the reason that we get so angry when we see great injustices in the world. It's because God has made us with this innate knowledge that the wrath of God is real and God is just and his judgment will come. It's not just Hitler who will stand before God and give an account for his atrocities. It is every sinner apart from this raised Christ. Every person who has not come to know and be in this Jesus Christ. No fear of wrath and no fear of death. We leave this body, we go to be with the Lord. Christ comes back, he raises our body and unites it with our souls. That, that's our future. That's our future in a nutshell. What fear is there in death? So first, it wipes out fear, and for that reason, it is joyful. Second, it joins us to our dearest friend and Savior. Notice the response of these women. They take hold of Jesus. The resurrection assures us that we will be with our Savior. We know him. We are going to be with him. The disciples were sad because they were going to be absent from Jesus. We will be with our Savior. This is a joyful day for us as Christians. Because it reminds us we're going to be with Jesus. That Jesus is alive. Third... It puts us on our faces before our glorious God. And you may think, well, why does that bring joy? Okay, joy, I get it. You know, joy because fear is wiped away. No one likes fears. Joy, there goes joy. Joy, that makes sense. It joins us to uh, the one we love who died for our sins. Okay, that makes sense. But, but why is it joyful? Because it puts us on our faces before our glorious God. And here's why. Because that is where we were created to be. To be human, is to be on our faces before God. True humanness is to be under God. It is to worship God. Verse nine, they fell at his feet and worshiped him. This is the place of true happiness. Happiness is found under God and in all of God. There is no true happiness. That's the reason that we do. I mean, all you have to do is just read a little bit about uh, these, these elite circles in our society. Think of Hollywood, for example. And all the ways that these people are so unhappy in life. All the opportunities you could have. All the pleasures that life can bring. You can never have enough boats and planes and vacations and stuff and experiences. And it doesn't fill the heart. It doesn't make us happy. We're happy when we're under the Lord who made us. We're happy when we're at his feet. That's when we are truly happy because that is when we are truly human. So we see the second characteristic, it is joyful. Thirdly, it is confrontational. Look at verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The truth of the resurrection is by nature confrontational. It gets up in man's face. The resurrection of Christ, the truth of the resurrection, gets up in our faces and speaks loudly. It says that Christ is Lord and we are not. It says that we are sinners and payment for sins is needed. It says that we can do nothing to remove our sin and conquer death. Even in our hypercharged self help, self reliance culture, we are powerless to fix our greatest problem the removal of sin and the conquering of death. Every health guru and dietitian is going to rot in the grave every person who tries to prop up this body in strength and even the mind in strength will one day come to an end. We cannot depend on ourselves. The resurrection tells us that and that we must rely on another. The resurrection confronts and shatters man's independence, his pride, and his false sense of security. It places all of us, every single one of us, before the tribunal of the risen Lord and judge. And it tells us no one can run, no one can hide. So in light of all of that, it should not surprise us one bit that the truth of the resurrection invites attack. It comes into the world, gets in man's face, and it is attacked. Satan, the world, and the flesh all hate and oppose the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and all that it implies. It confronts and it is attacked. And this passage, these verses we just read, show us that it has been that way from the beginning. Do you see that? The resurrection has always been attacked. It has always been Confrontational, Even when told by the soldiers that an angel had come. This is the great, the, their hearts are exposed. Look at this. Even when told what had happened, the Jewish religious leaders chose bribery and deception over acceptance and belief. The true colors clearly in view. Not a single one of those men can stand before God and say, but only if Jesus would have showed us more signs, we would have believed. If only I would have seen Jesus do this or that, I would have believed. No, oh, these men care nothing about evidence. And so many who talk of evidence and errors in the Bible and use all sorts of cliches really don't care about evidence. How many, how many articles, how many books, how much searching, how much toiling have you done? That's how you'll know how much you really care about evidence, but you pat yourself on the back like you do, like you're a mini-historian, a mini-philosopher. You've risen above the rest. You're an open-minded person. You're a strong thinker, and so forth. Then follow the evidence with vigor. Really follow it. But we see here that these men care nothing about the evidence. They simply reject Jesus. And this gives us insight into why people do not turn and believe. Why is it that people do not turn and believe? It is not because the right apologetic arguments haven't been given to them. It's not because they've seen 10 things, but they need to see 12 things. It's it's, It's not about that. Here we get the answer. It is not because the resurrection is unconvincing. It is because the heart is unwilling. That's the reason. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness because their deeds were evil, and they hate the light. We all started out that way, and apart from Christ, we would all still be in that seat. It is not because the resurrection is unconvincing. It is because the heart is unwilling. Finally, we see, as we finish up this morning, the fourth characteristic of the resurrection we get from this passage is that it is practical. We've seen it as credible, joyful, confrontational, and now let's conclude by seeing that it is practical. Look at verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the women are told to tell Jesus' disciples to meet him in Galilee the hub of his earthly ministry. Now we know that Jesus later appeared to his disciples before they were in Galilee. We know that from the Gospel of John in particular. He comes back, he comes and appears to them, and then we see he comes later and appears to Thomas so that Thomas would also believe. He said, unless I put my fingers in his wounds, unless I see him, I will not believe. And so Jesus says, okay. So Jesus comes and shows Thomas. So we know that they've already seen Jesus Jesus, but it seems that this meeting in Galilee is what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 6, when he says that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So I'm convinced that this is, this is the gathering. This is what we just read about, is where over 500 people there see the risen Christ. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, and, and, and go, and you can ask some of them, He's, he implies that. Many of them are still alive. Well, go talk to them. It's not just a guy or two who saw Jesus raised and they conspired with this story. There's over 500 people, many of whom are walking around. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, go check it out. Go do some interviews. Go talk to some people. Matthew only mentions the 11 here, the 12 minus Judas, But it is likely that this is the gathering of the 500 who saw Jesus at one time. And since the 11 had already seen him raised, as we read in John, those who doubted in verse 17 were probably among the others who were present. Now, once again, why why did, why did Matthew say this? I mean, how disparaging, right? How inconvenient. He's trying to proclaim the crucified risen Christ with the hope that people would turn to him in faith and believe in him and he's just got to let them know some people doubted. Once again, we see the same sort of honesty, the same sort of transparency, the same sort of willingness to put the embarrassing details in the text showing this is not the sort of story that is made up. But what do we have here? What does this have to do with the resurrection? These final verses. Typically taken totally apart from the rest of the gospel. Seen as a, a unique unit in its own right. The great commission. So what does this have to do with the resurrection? Well, in these verses the resurrected Christ speaks. He speaks authoritatively. He speaks as the raised Christ. He speaks as the one who has been given authority over all heaven and earth. He commands, he directs, he commissions his followers to get busy declaring the, declaring the truth of his resurrection. In the previous passage, we are told that a lie was spread abroad, that the disciples of Jesus took his body. Here, Jesus directs his disciples to spread abroad the truth that will consume and overshadow this Lie. And here's the big idea before we leave this morning, before we finish up. This is the big idea I want you to get. The resurrection is practical for life. It's not something, as you've heard me say many times, not something that we merely marvel at. It's not an abstract thing. It's not a mere bullet point on our confession of faith. It is practical for our everyday lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ pushes us out. It pushes us forward. The resurrection results in servants on mission. That's what we see here. The Lord is commanding those who call him Lord. The earliest confession of faith was simple and short. Jesus is Lord. And here we see it in action. Those who embrace Christ as Lord, those who submit to Christ as Lord, going forth and spreading his lordship everywhere they go. Disciples who make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. And I want to say this to us. This gives meaning to our lives. Maybe you came here this morning, you feel aimless. Just kind of restless in life. You feel aimless. You feel restless. Restless. You feel purposeless, bored. May it not be so for anyone who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May it not be so for anyone who really believes that this raised Lord commands those who call him Lord and believe in him as Lord and submit to him as Lord to go out and make his Lordship known. We got plenty to do. We've got plenty to do. There is no aimlessness, purposelessness, boredom for the one who believes in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And finally, it assures us this is practical. It assures us the resurrected Jesus assures us all at the very end of Matthew's gospel with these words And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us when we are absolutely beat down. He's with us when the suffering is too much to bear, when the sadness and the sorrow are too much to bear. He's with us when we feel dry and ashamed, uncomfortable, when we feel absolutely incapable. I am with you always. To the end of the age. I am with you until you come to be with me. I am with you until I come back for you. This is the outworking of the resurrection that we celebrate today. And it is immediately and abundantly practical to our everyday lives. Filled with joy, filled with purpose, filled with mission, and filled with assurance that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is with us right now. And all the way up to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God, we thank you that many of us who did not believe in the resurrection, who did not believe in the historical realities of this Christ, have come to know that these are true. By means of your spirit. You have given us the gift of faith. You have enlivened our minds to see clearly. You have made our hearts willing to embrace this Christ. Father, we praise you. And we pray for any among us this morning for whom that has not happened. God, be merciful, be gracious. Would they seek you while you may be found. While they have breath? While they have eyes to see and ears to hear, while their souls remain in their bodies, would they seek you fervently and not be lost in the trivialities and vaporous pleasures of this ephemeral life? Father, would they turn to you and trust in the raised Christ? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.